We now proceed to the main business of this evening, which is a discourse on the battle for Afghanistan, a topic which perhaps has acquired some additional actuality in view of Barack Obama's State of the Union address yesterday. Our speaker, William Dalrymple, is not here on his first visit. Uh, he gave us a very excellent discourse a few years ago on the, his book, From the Holy Mountain. And uh, if I remember correctly, he was at that point also mentioned that he began life as an art historian interested in early Celtic art and the Byzantine influences on it. But he is now, of course, mainly known as a travel writer, historian, and an expert on the Near and Middle East. And we are all, I think, looking forward to hearing his account of the battle for Afghanistan, a battle in which, if I remember rightly, uh, Sherlock Holmes' assistant got a bullet in the bottom. But, um, however, that's a, his, that's a fictitious event, of course. The battle was real. And it is now my great pleasure to call on William Dalrymple to address the Academy. Well, it uh, doesn't behoove me to correct the president, but I think it was the second Afghan war that right, uh, Dr. Watson got the bullet at the bottom. It was the first Afghan war where Flashman uh, <laughs> made his striking appearance. Yes. Um, there were very sweet of you to have me back in this magnificent room um, and uh, just coming through the antechamber and smelling the leather bindings of the books is pleasure enough. I'd like you to imagine yourselves on the step between Afghanistan and Persia on a hot summer's night in 1837. The, Shah, the new Shah of Iran, Mohammed Shah, has declared as part of his coronation speech that he'll reconquer the disputed border town of Herat. And one of his first actions on succeeding to the throne is to march the Qajar Persian army up to Meshed, the northeastern point of Iran, and to prepare war on this great fortress. And the British are in Iran at this point, trying to train up the Persian army, particularly the artillery, because for the previous 50, 60 years, the Russians have been gobbling up great chunks of the Persian Empire, been inflicting horrendous defeats on the still medieval Persian army with their new artillery, and have seized what is now Azerbaijan and Armenia from the Persians. And the British, who are now the great rivals of the Russians are determined to steal the, uh, the Persian resolve and to train them up to resist the Russians. The background to all this, imagine for the previous 100 years, the British, from their trading bases, what are called the factories in Calcutta, Madras, and Bombay, have been expanding outwards very aggressively. Um, a single Governor-General, the Anglo-Irish Lord Wellesley, elder brother of the Duke of Wellington, has gobbled up more of India than Napoleon has conquered of Europe in a single period of five years. 
At the same time as the British are gobbling up the old Mughal Empire, moving northwards and westwards towards the Himalayas, the Russians have been moving southwards, gobbling up the Central Asian Emirates and Khanates, and are now about to attack Kiva, Bukhara, and Samarkand. And these two great European land empires, like two great stains on the map, are heading towards each other. And anyone can see, looking at the map, that they're going to meet somewhere in Central Asia. And that the, the, uh, the Hindu Kush, the Pamirs, or the Himalayas, will be the... Uh, the dividing line between these two empires. But where the, they'll meet and where they'll clash and, and where the boundaries will be is the question that's up for grabs at this period. And the hawks on both sides, particularly the more aggressive hawks in London and Calcutta, are urging the British onwards, saying, grab Afghanistan. Look at it. It's there in the map, this empty space. Go in there. Grab it now, and you'll control the crossroads of Central Asia. If you sit there, you can control the routes between Iran and China, between Samarkand and Delhi. Get in there first, grab it, and you'll see off the Russians. The markets will be yours. It's there for the taking. And it looks very inviting. The map is empty. There's no decent map of that whole area. There's thousands of miles of uncharted territory. And anyone can see this is the kind of roundabout. This is the crossroads. Get this and everything else is yours. And since the defeat of Napoleon, Russia has become the great bogeyman of the British right wing. And a whole lot of, a whole lot of stuff, only partially exaggerated, about Russian atrocities in the Caucasus um, is being published, and you have these polemics, Colonel de Lacey Evans, also from this island, uh, is writing these, these angry polemics saying, get get there first, fend off the Russian bear, uh, and, uh, and do this, strike a blow for, for Britain. The British, incidentally, are there in a very strange form. The East India Company, which is something we take for granted now, but is a, uh, a deeply sinister organization in that it's a company. Uh, it has a boardroom. It has shares and shareholders and annual general meetings. But it also has the largest standing army in Asia. And this strange company, which for 150 years traded in silks and spices and, and, and made a nice profit sort of doing the China tea trade and all the rest of it, uh, has transformed itself into a hugely aggressive military force. And if you were to, to sort of transform it into the present, imagine sort of McDonald's with fighter jets or Microsoft <laughs> with tanks. Uh, and you begin to feel how uneasy this thing is. And it's only semi-regulated by the British government. There's a strange symbiotic relationship. The British are aware that this thing is, is good for Britain. They've seized the whole empire for Britain. But it's only just controlled by the government. It's, it's semi-independent. And it can do its own things. It can wage war on its own without any reference to London. So this is the background. And here we are on the step between... Iran and Persia, and a young British intelligence officer who's been posted to Persia to train up the artillery of the Persian army to resist the Russians, has been sent up to observe the troop movements on the northeast corner of Iran. This young man is 25 years old. He's a, the son of a racehorse dealer from Newmarket, a great rider, big, powerful man. 
um, good-looking, right, sort of sweep of hair, rather sort of film starry looks. And in his, and he's also a scholar. Uh, and like many of these strange characters who get sent off at this period at the age of 16, he now has seven or eight uh, Asian languages. He's fluent in Persian, Arabic, Jagadai, Turkish, all sorts of strange Arabic, uh, all sorts of strange tongues. And he's a good writer. And having, in his spare time, in between training the Persians to fire these cannon, he's been trying to decipher ancient Persian cuneiform, as one does, uh, and has been clambering around the um, rock face of Behistun, uh, the inscriptions of Darius, uh, and rides out every night after he's finished his day job uh, to take uh, molds and so on. And in due course, he will be the person who's responsible for translating ancient cuneiform. But at this point, he's riding through the desert. He's been on his horse for two days and a night. And because there's a war brewing, the normal system of post horses at caravanserides is not working properly, and he can't change his mount. So he's exhausted. His horse is drooping. And sometime in the middle of the night, he loses his way and disappears off the main road into the mountains, half asleep, nodding off. And he wakes up to find himself completely lost in this very dangerous territory between Iran and Afghanistan. At some point, dawn begins to break, and you can see the first light on the Kohi Shah Jahan mountains. And as that light begins to rise and things become a bit clearer, he sees in the distance what looks like a great cloud of dust. And as it, the light gets stronger and he gets closer, he can see it's a great body of cavalry riding down on him. Now, he doesn't know where he is. There's a war about to break up. This is anyway the main smuggling route between Afghanistan and Iran. There are plenty of brigands. It's debatable lands between two, uh, two empires. All the old rogues and cutthroats and cut purses and everyone else disappear into this space uh, to escape the law. And he doesn't know who they are. So he does what any of us would have done in this situation. He backs off into a side alley. And he looks at these horsemen as they pass. And he imagines it's either going to be the Afghans going to Persia or the Persians going to Af Afghanistan or smugglers or bandits or what have you. But it's none of those. Instead, to his surprise and amazement, and he realizes immediately the significance of what he sees, the cavalry are a body of Russian imperial Cossack cavalry heading into Iran. And this rather handsome, mustachioed figure leading them, Ivan Vitkovich, who is the first Russian player of the great game, an extraordinary figure, a Persian revolution, sorry, a Polish revolutionary at birth, who, aged 14, was convicted of anti-Russian activities in Vilnius, sent off in chains to the Russian steppe, and who, through his own <coughs> incredible um, skills in languages and so on, has worked his way up to become the first Russian agent of the great game, seeing off the various British great gamers who are being sent out to spy out what's going on in Samarkand, Bukhara, and Kiva. So this chance sighting, there was no reason for Rawlinson to be on this valley. Um, there was no reason for anyone to see this, but this chance sighting of the Russians heading unequivocally into Afghanistan. And the groom who's with Rawlinson 
is from the Russian, sorry, is from the British legation in Tehran and recognizes a counterpart, a Russian groom who's from the Russian legation in Tehran. And they've hung out in the stables in, in Tehran together. But comes for the <coughs> British this vital single piece of intelligence that the hawks have been fantasizing about for 20 years, which massaged and given a bit of spin and, and given a little shove in the right direction, becomes the piece of evidence that the Russians have designs on Afghanistan. In fact, it's a semi-official mission beginning to explore the possibility of opening diplomatic relations between Russia and Afghanistan. But in the hands of the hawks, given a little manipulation, given a bit of spin, it becomes clear and unequivocal evidence that the Russians are about to attack Afghanistan and charge down the Khyber Pass and try and wrest India from the British. In modern terms, again, it is rather like that dodgy piece of evidence that MI6 had about the yellow cake in Nigeria that Saddam Hussein was meant to be uh, uh, on the way to capture nuclear weapons. And that was manipulated by a modern group of hawks to produce the Iraq war, the dodgy dossier. We have a dodgy dossier here because there is a British, or rather a Scottish, great gamer who is Vitkovich's counterpart. Alexander Burns, as chance would have it, the nephew of Robbie Burns, the, the poet. And Bur Alexander Burns is a rather dashing character, like his uncle. Like his uncle, he's oversexed, he's, uh, he's clever, he's got away with words. And he is, the as a young man of only 25, again like Rawlinson, with five or six languages under his belt by this stage, uh, and given his head, because at this period it takes six months to send a, a message to London, so there's a great deal of independence on the ground. He is sent up to Afghanistan, and he meets Vitkovich, and these two young men have known about each other, and there's this wonderful Christmas Day dinner where the leading British spy in Afghanistan and the leading Russian spy in Afghanistan agree to have a Christmas dinner together before beginning the following morning to intercept each other's messages uh, and uh, do all the stuff that they're there to do to frustrate each other's plans. But they have this lovely dinner when they sort of, they both heard about each other in, in Bukhara. One was just after the other. Uh, they know they've been given briefings about each other's activities. They know exactly what the other's up to. And they have this long Christmas dinner where they say nothing about what they're up to, but they uh, say how much they admire each other. The following morning, Alexander Burns seizes Vitkovich's entire correspondence via a, a series of carpet dealers and all sorts of other stuff. Anyway, it's in the book. Um, so Burns becomes aware that in actual fact, this is only an exploratory mission. And having read the correspondence and so on, he sends a message to Calcutta that there is actually no particular cause for alarm, that this is perfectly reasonable beginning of diplomatic relations, not the groundwork for a major invasion or anything else. But he's ignored because there's already in Calcutta a group of right-wingers who are determined to have this war. And just as Paul Wolfowitz, Douglas Fate, all these neocons used the manipulated intelligence 10 years ago to create the Iraq war, totally unnecessarily, pushing onto a credulous American public 
the idea that Saddam Hussein was somehow involved in 9-11 and was about to get nuclear weapons and chemical weapons, none of which were actually true. So at this period, this one sighting of Vitkovich is the evidence that the British need to fight a major war and capture Afghanistan. And Burns, who's put everyone's nose out by publishing an interesting travel book, by being too glamorous and, and all the rest of it, is ignored. And a plan is hatched. The British have the trump card in Shah Shuja ul-Mulk, the grandson of the founder of the Afghan Empire. The Afghan Empire is founded, just like the East India Company has been built on the ruins of the Mughal Empire. So the big Afghan Durrani Empire has been built out of the ruins of three Asian empires, the declining Mughals, the declining Uzbek Empire in Central Asia, and the declining Safavid Empire in Persia. And for a brief generation, Ahmed Shah Durrani creates an Afghan empire based on Kandahar, which controls all of modern Afghanistan, all of modern Pakistan, Kashmir, and quite a lot of Persia. That's imploded. It's grown up like a mushroom. It's disappeared. And Shah Shuja, who is the grandson, has the terrible fate of seeing this empire of his grandfather disappear under his watch. And by the age of 30, this guy's civilized, he's a poet, he loves gardens, he's got great taste in painting and architecture, he commissions miniatures, he's, he writes very good Persian poetry himself and a wonderful Peepsian autobiography, which he writes in exile. But by the age of 30, he's been kicked out. And he comes as a refugee with his wife to the East India Company, who realized that this guy's useful. So they've lodged him in a little courtyard house in Ludhiana and allow him a pension to get on and, and keep up his regal pretensions. This guy, for 30 years, has been sitting in Ludhiana, paid for by the East India Company, and now, with this sighting of the Russians, he's suddenly useful. And he's pulled out of retirement, and the British give him 24 hours' notice and tell him, you're off to Afghanistan, we're going to put you back on the throne. This guy, for the record, is from the same tiny sub-tribe as President Hamid Karzai. It goes on like this. The British ambassador in Tehran writes to London, to Lord Palmerston, we should declare that he who is not with us is against us. We must secure Afghanistan. You have the same issues being discussed in the cables going backwards and forwards. In the, in the, in the, no, they don't have cables. I'm making this up as I go along. Uh, in the uh, letters going backwards and forwards between uh, um, uh, Calcutta and London. Do you invade a country like Afghanistan with a view to just pragmatically beating the Russians? Or do you have a mission there? Should you introduce democracy? Should you uh, introduce Western systems of justice? Should you try and liberate the Afghan women? No, says the spy master, who is the guy that is pushing the whole uh, British invasion, Sir Claude Wade, the enemy of Burns. There is nothing to be more dreaded or guarded against, I think, than the overweening confidence with which we are too often accustomed to regard the excellence of our own institutions and the anxiety that we display to introduce them in new and untried soils. Such interference will always lead to acrimonious disputes, if not a violent reaction. In other words, we don't do nation building. So this whole strange, unnecessary war gets massaged into being. And by 18 months after Rawlinson has seen the Russians entering Afghanistan, 
an enormous army is poised to invade Afghanistan. They gather at Ferozpur in the Punjab. 14,000 East India Company sepoys, 6,000 Afghan irregulars recruited by Shah Shuja, 21,000 troops in all, accompanied by no less than 38,000 Indian camp followers. They march off to war with 30,000 camels. One brigadier needs 50 camels to carry his kit, while the ranking British general needs 260. There are 30 camels carrying the wine cellar. There are 10 camels carrying cheroots and cigars, and one camel carrying eau de cologne. One regiment goes with its own foxhounds. At the head of it is an idiot called Sir William McNaughton, an Ulsterman. Paul McNaughton should never have left the secretary's office. He is ignorant of men, even to simplicity, and utterly incapable of forming and guiding administrative measures. This is one of his, his assistants. The judicial line would probably have suited him best, and even then, only in the Court of Appeal, judging only written evidence. <laughs> he is, however, like everyone else in this story, a brilliant Oriental scholar, and he sits in, on top of his elephant as he sways into Afghanistan, correcting the proofs of his translation of, of the Arabian Nights. So off they go. Look at them all. These, the, the sepoys, as you can see, are in their thick winter red uniform with the red coats. Um, there are horses trying to buck as they go into the river. There are camels carrying... Look at the bottom left. There's the mess camels. That's the, all the crockery. And um, uh, according to one officer, uh, those camels carry jams, pickles, cheroots, spotted fish, hematically sealed meats, plate glass, crockery, wax candles, and table linen. Uh, here we are with the Munshi, who's the translator, heading off in his bullock cart. We've got some prisoners at the top. And at the bottom, we've got the treasure on another cart. And we have, on the bottom right, all the sheep and the goats they're meant to eat. Many young officers would have soon have thought of leaving behind their swords and double-barreled pistols as to travel without their dressing cases, their perfumes, and their Windsor soap, writes a rather disgusted officer, General Knott. So off they head into the mountains, but they haven't got any good maps. So it's all very well invading Afghanistan, but they've really got no idea where they're going. Uh, so they head off into the Bolan Passes. They head off up into these... Look at all these guys, these long crocodiles of, of men heading vaguely in the, in the direction of Afghanistan, hoping that at some point they might hit the right country. <laughs> but this, they, but the, I mean, it's, it's a chaotic and sort of mad expedition with the foxhounds and the, and the eau de cologne and the cheroots. Uh, and no good maps. And uh, about a quarter of the sepoys die of thirst. The Baluchis snipe at them. But by sheer sort of default of the surprise of the whole thing, when a British army or an East India Company army appears at the back end of the Bolan Pass, the Afghans are so amazed that they run off without a battle. And Shah Shuja is able to walk into Kandahar without a shot being fired and to pay the, his respects and receive the barakat of his grandfather, Ahmed Shah Durrani, at the mausoleum in the top right, top left of this picture. Uh, they then um, decide that, it's, as not a shot was fired, and clearly the Afghans uh, don't know anything about warfare, uh, uh, they've been told that there are no defences at the next uh, stop, which is Ghazni. They leave their cannon behind and head off to Ghazni, only to find that, in actual fact, Ghazni is rather a good fortress. Um, and they have no option but to um, blow down the front door and march in. So this is the one action 
of the entire campaign. Ghazni is captured, and within a month of the capture of Ghazni, they're back in the Balahazar of Kabul, and Shah Shuja is placed on the throne of his ancestors. And rather like in 2002, there's a lot of braying and, and clucking of the hawks who have captured this prize territory of Central Asia with barely a shot being fired. It's been a cakewalk. Shashut is on the throne. He's deeply grateful to his British backers who've taken him in for 30 years, put him back on the throne, and he's making it quite clear that he'll do whatever they want in terms of trade concessions and all the rest of it. And the Russians, uh, Bitkovich, who is disowned by the Russian government and goes into a hotel room in St. Petersburg, puts a pistol in his mouth and blows his brains out. So round one to Burns and the British. But in the ease of this conquest lies the seeds of the undoing of this whole adventure. The British are so confident of their conquest that rather than fortifying themselves in some strategic fastness and building walls and defensive bastions, they merely line up their tents in the plains outside Kabul, as you can see in this picture. Uh, and in due course, some of the tents are replaced by barrack buildings, and a wooden palisade is erected around the tents, and a ditch dug around the palisade. But it's, as you can see from this picture very clearly, the place they choose for their cantonment is surrounded on every side by hills. And it's completely indefensible. Uh, this doesn't give anybody pause for thought at this point. Instead, um, the Memsabs are brought up from Calcutta. Lady Sale arrives with an unmarried daughter with seeds from her garden in Agra and a grand piano. The following spring, she writes in her diary, my sweet peas and geraniums are much admired by the Afghan gentleman, and in the kitchen garden, the potatoes especially thrive. There is cricket and horse racing and open-air amateur theatricals, and as winter draws in, snipe and duck shooting, skating and snowman building. The foxhounds, or those uh, that haven't been eaten in the Bolan Pass, um, are taken out to hunt jackals. And Alexander Burns throws a Christmas party with Scottish reels and bagpipes and presides over it all in Highland dress, complete with kilt and an enormous forum. Uh, already there is discreet talk of annexing Afghanistan and making it the summer capital of the Raj rather than Simla. Everyone makes nice remarks about how good and English the climate is. Um, then they start fiddling around. First of all, what they do is they begin, uh, as ISAF tried to do in 2003, 2004, to erect a, to create a standing army rather than the feudal levies which Afghanistan had been uh, uh, defended by in the past. And they... Uh, they uh, take lands away from any of the old nobility in order to finance this, and they piss off all the Afghan nobility this way. But worse still, they begin to... Uh, Shah Shuja is brought up from Ludhiana with his family. Dost Muhammad, uh, uh, who's been on the run, surrenders and is put back in Shah Shuja's old palace in Ludhiana. There's a perfect swap regime change at its purest. But the big problem is that the British begin to interfere with the Afghan women. 
Now, I know that the Garda are training up the Afghan police force. Many of you have attempted to, are going to visit Afghanistan and attempted by the very beautiful women of Afghanistan, don't. Uh, it's not a wise move. Um, and it's particularly a mistake to interfere with this particular woman who is the girlfriend of a leading Afghan nobleman called Abdullah Khan Atchaksai. But this doesn't stop Alexander Burns immediately trying to seduce her, which he succeeds in doing. And this is a big mistake. It happened by God's will. This is an account of Mirza Atta, who's one of... I, a little just a break in here. The, the, the excuse for writing this book, when there are already a number of books on the first Afghan war, is that they're all written from the British perspective and with the very voluminous and excellent British sources for this war. The research for this book was centered principally on finding new Afghan accounts of this war, so as to give it the other side. And I was knew from my previous work that it, there was likely to be something, because this is to the Afghans, this war is to the Afghans what uh, the Easter Rising is to you guys. It's the big moment of national liberation. And it seemed to me extremely unlikely that there wouldn't be Afghan accounts. But I didn't expect to find, which is what I did within five days of arrival in Kabul, to find that there were nine full-length Afghan accounts of this uprising and, and defeat of the British. Two epic poems, four later court histories, and even an autobiography of Shah Shuja, all written in diary, all known to Afghan historians, strangely enough, never translated into English, never used by a single historian writing in English. So there's this huge wealth of Afghan accounts that allow one's, uh, well, in the words of Robbie Burns, uh, allow ourselves to see us as others see us, um, see ourselves as others see us. And uh, so Mirza Atag gives his account of the beginning of the uprising. It happened by God's will that a slave girl of Abdullah Khan Atchaksai, that's this lovely lady, ran away from the house of the residence of Alexander Burns, sorry, ran away from the house of Abdullah Khan Atchaksai to the residence of Alexander Burns. When on inquiry it was found out that that was where she had gone, the Khan, beside himself with fury, sent his attendant to fetch the silly girl back. But the Scotsman, swollen with pride, cursing and swearing, had the Khan's attendant severely beaten and thrown out of the house. The Khan then summoned the other Sadars and said, Now we are justified in throwing off this English yoke. They stretched the hand of tyranny to dishonour private citizens, great and small. Making love to a slave girl isn't worth the ritual bath that follows it, but we have to put a stop to it right here, right now. Otherwise, and this is my favourite quote of the whole book, the English will ride the donkey of their desires into the field of stupidity. <laughs> to the point of having us all arrested. I put my trust in God and raise the battle standard of the prophet and thus go to fight. If, succeed, if success rewards us, then it is as we wished. And if we die in battle... It is still better than to live with degradation and dishonour. The other nobles, his childhood friends, tightened their belts and girt their loins and prepared for jihad. So off they go, round the corner to Alexander Burns's house, where he's there with this lovely lady, and they surround the house. Burns, who's so confident, like everyone else at this period, that he has only five sepoy guards. They're shot down. The, the insurgents enter his house. Burns quickly changes into Afghan dress, but is hacked down and killed as he flees out the back door. His boss, Henry McNaughton, the, 
the guy who's correcting the proofs on this elephant, goes out to negotiate with the insurgents and is shot dead by the negotiators. The British, who have been so confident, they haven't even bothered putting their commissariat stores within the cantonment. They're sitting in two outlying forts nearer the old city than the cantonment proper, lose both their food, their gunpowder, and their musket balls within 24 hours of the uprising breaking out. And within 72 hours, the Afghans are hauling cannons up the hills. And as you can see, at this stage, we have a couple of barrack buildings here, but basically it's still the tents in these valley surrounded on every side by hills. And so the Afghans just lob a few shells and, and cannonballs into the cantonments. The British have got no food, they're out of ammunition, and within a month, having eaten all the beagles and the foxhounds, they are screwed, and they have to surrender. There's absolutely no way. There's, already it's November, the passes are closed, there's no reinforcements coming from Delhi to rescue these guys. And there is no option but for this proud army, which marched in so with their plumed shakos and their scarlet cloaks and all the lancers and what have you, the whole lot have to surrender within three weeks. And they negotiate a withdrawal. The, the main, another problem is this guy, uh, William Elphinstone, who is the British general in charge. He is only got the job because Lord Elphinstone wanted to go grouse shooting on his moors in the Scottish borders. And he is riddled with gout. He hasn't seen action since Waterloo. And he climbs onto his horse at the beginning. He falls off the horse. The horse falls on him, and that's him finished. Um, and the British have no option but to get their palaquins and prepare their kit and negotiate a safe passage through to India. And they're allowed to take their small arms, but not their artillery. Now, everyone knows this isn't really a very good idea because it's the middle of winter. Afghanistan's had the worst snow it's had in a generation. There are snow drifts in the high passes, six or seven foot tall. Um, the sepoys, who, as you can see from this picture, are from Bihar and UP, the Indians who've never seen snow before, have no idea what to do in this climate. And would you trust these guys anyway to give you safe passage? But there is no option. Um, at this point, and uh, the leading general who was taking command in the absence of Elphinstone, who's more or less incapacitated at this point, uh, Shelton is determined to head back to India as soon as he can. And so off they march. On the 6th of January, 1842, amid heavy snow, the retreat begins. Four and a half thousand troops are left. 700 of them Europeans, the rest of them sepoys from Bihar, accompanied by about 12,000 camp followers, grooms, sices, attendants, what have you. Um, George Lawrence, the young officer, leaves a diary account. At 9 a.m., the troops moved off. A crouching, drooping, dispirited army, so different from the smart light-hearted body of men. They had appeared only recently. The men sank a foot deep in the snow with each step. My heart sunk within me under the conviction that we were a doomed force. 
Now, one of the people there is my great uncle, this guy, Colin McKenzie, who looks very nice in his kaftan. He's one of the few survivors of this debacle. He's also one of the best writers. And he writes in his diary, in his memoirs afterwards. I always remembered as one of the most heart-rending sights of this humiliating day. Fixing my eyes by chance on a little Hindustani child perfectly naked, sitting in the snow, with no mother or father near her. She was a beautiful little girl, about two years old, just strong enough to sit upright with her little legs doubled underneath her, her hair curling in waving locks around her soft little throat, and her great black eyes dilated to twice their normal size fixed on the armed men, the passing cavalry, and all the strange sights that met her gaze. Many other children as young, as innocent as her, I saw slain on the road that day, and women with their long, dark hair wet with their own blood. The rear guard had to fight the whole way to the first camping ground at Bagrami, and I passed through a literally continuous line of poor wretches, men, women, and children, dead or dying from the cold and misery who, unable to move, entreated their comrades to kill them and put an end to their misery. The British then repeat the mistake they've made at the beginning of the uprising. The Afghans have given them food and supplies to get through to India as part of the deal of surrender. And they've, uh, but they managed to lose their commissariat again. First out is the cavalry, then come the infantry, the baggage comes last, and the jihadis, the Ghazis, swoop down on this on the evening as they're queuing to cross the bridge over the Kabul River. And by nine o'clock, the British realize that they're sitting in this camping site waiting for the food and the tents to turn up, and they don't. The temperature is already sinking below zero. It's very, very, very cold. No one's got anything to eat, and the tents aren't there. And the Afghans who are with the British, of which there's quite a number still, because they've recruited their own Afghan forces, know exactly what to do in this situation. They clear a circle in the snow, and they light a fire in the middle. And then they lie down, and they fan out, like, I don't know, petals on a daisy or something, in a circle around the fire, with their feet facing the fire, and they put their cloaks and all their clothes over each other, and by their own body heat, body to body, keep themselves alive, in this desperate minus 10, minus 20 temperatures. But the poor old sepoys have no idea what to do. They've never seen snow before. And they're sitting there in shorts, without tents, without food. And they lie down in the snow, and the following morning, they've got the most desperate frostbite. Their feet look like charred logs of wood, and so do their hands. They can't fire their muskets. And in that situation, by about 6 the following morning at dawn, the Afghan forces come up behind them. They're, they flee, panic-stricken, into the Kabul Pass, where there is waiting for them the mother of all ambushes. The British, at this point, are fighting with the Brown Best Musket, which was the same weapon that was used at Culloden against Bonnie Prince Charlie or against uh, Napoleon at Waterloo. It's a, it's a generation old. It's outmoded. It works perfectly well on a European battlefield but it's only got a range of three or 400 yards. The Afghans have 
as we saw in this picture, these very, very old-fashioned, clumsy jezails, which take forever to load, are heavy and difficult to carry, but they fire about half a mile and downhill even further. They're like sniper rifles. And the Afghans have realized this, so they just put their slit trenches beyond the range of the muskets, halfway up the hills. And the first the British know that there's anyone there, because the Afghans are brilliant at hiding themselves in the terrain, is this strange metallic ringing noise, ringing out all over the valley and echoing backwards and forwards across the hills. A noise so unmistakable in its character that it can never be forgotten. This is Lady Sale, by those whose ears have once been startled by the unfamiliar ringing sound. What it is, of course, is the ramrods going down the jazales, loading them prior to firing. Seconds later, the ambush is sprung. Lady Sale again. The confusion was fearful. We had not proceeded half a mile when we were heavily fired upon. The pony my daughter rode was wounded both in the ear and the neck. I fortunately had only one musket ball in my arm. Three others passed through my cloak near the shoulder without doing me any injury. But the pass completely choked up. And for a considerable period, we were entirely stationary under the heaviest fire. That night, the sepoys and camp followers, half frozen, tried to force their way into not only my tent, but into my bed. Many poor wretches died around the tent that night. Many women and children were abducted. 18,000 men, women and children left the cantonment on the 6th of January. It's down to about 5,000 by night three. That night, these remaining 5,000, 13,000 are already dead. 5,000 climb up the Tezin Pass and there on the very peak, they hit the most incredible blizzard. 500 make it down the far side. They find that night facing them in the dark a holly hedge erected across the narrowest place in the path. As they're trying to scramble over it, there's a panic. The cavalry come up. They crush the infantry against it. 200 make it beyond the, the holly hedge. Those 200 are exposed the following dawn on the hill of Gundamuk. They haven't eaten for three days, and they see no point. There's no hope of fleeing any further. So they form themselves up <coughs> on a square on the hilltop, and they fire until they've exhausted their ammunition, and then they fight on with their bayonets. Only one man is taken hostage because he's wrapped the regimental colors around him, Captain Thomas Souter, and he is taken hostage. Everyone else is killed. Some of the cavalry, however, make it on to the Nimla Gardens, about 10 miles further on. These are the beautiful Mughal Gardens built by Shah Jahan around the same time as the Taj Mahal. They're invited by the gardeners to join them for breakfast, and they sit down and they're given yogurt and naan, and then the gardeners club them on the head and kill them. One man of the 18,000 makes it through to Jalalabad, Dr. Bryden on his horse. He's asked by the people on the battlements, where is the army? And he replies, I am the army. That night, the 
Lamps are raised on the gates and bugles are blown to guide in any last stragglers, but not one limps in. Thomas Seaton is a young officer on duty that night. A strong wind was blowing from the south, which sent the sound of those bugles blowing over the town. The terrible wailing sound of those bugles I will never forget. It was a dirge for our slaughtered soldiers and heard throughout the night had an inexpressibly mournful and depressing effect. About five Gurkhas make it in subsequently and a Greek shopkeeper called Mr. Baness who's come with the camp followers. No one else makes it through. The sepoys who are strong and not frostbitten are taken off and sold as slaves. What the Afghans do at this period with their slaves is that they tie a horsehair rope. They sew them into the clavicle so that they are then roped to the saddle of the capturer. And if you don't keep up with the horse, it rips your chest open. And about 3,000 sepoys are taken off in this manner and sold in the slave markets of Bukhara, effectively deserted by their officers. Those who've got frostbite are stripped of their clothes and driven into the snow. A few survive through cannibalism. My great uncle was taken hostage, and this is his account of driving back, on, of riding back uh, on a horse through these scenes of slaughter. We came across many bloody scenes. Sepoys and camp followers being stripped and plundered on all sides. And such as refused to give up their money and valuables were instantly stabbed and cut down. On seeing us, the poor creatures, terrified, cried out for help, and many of them, recognizing me by name, cried out. But what could we do? The gills' eyes had now tasted blood and clearly showed their tigerish nature, becoming very savage and fierce in their demeanor towards ourselves, demanding that we should be given up to them for sacrifice, brandishing their long, blood-stained knives in our faces and telling us to look upon the heaps of carcasses around us as we should still be, we should soon be among them ourselves. You came to Kabul for fruit, did you? How do you like it now, they cried. As we proceeded, we met numbers of the enemy's horse and foot returning to Kabul, laden with plunder of all kinds. One miscreant had a little Indian girl seated behind him. Lady Sale is another of the hostages and she's taken off with about 40 other officers' wives and the odd lucky officer into captivity, but the rest are killed. For the Afghans, however, this is, of course, the most miraculous and amazing turnaround of fortune. The British at this point, just to give you a bit of perspective, are at the very peak of their economic power. Traditionally, Britain has controlled up to this point about 5-6% of the world economy. By 1840, the British controlled 40% 40 of the world's GDP. It's the highest watermark of British economic power. By the 1860s, the rise of Germany will eat into that. It'll be declining. And by the 1890s, with America coming up, the whole thing begins to decline. But at this point, the British control 40% of the world's, cap uh, world's annual GDP. 
high point of their economic power in, in the whole history of the empire. And yet, at this point, they haven't just been defeated in Afghanistan. An entire army has been so completely wiped out that it seems, at least on the first night, there is only one single survivor. And to the Afghans, of course, this is little short of a miracle. Mirza Atta. By within about six months, these epic poems have been composed, like the Song of Roland or Beowulf, and already numbers are beginning to go crazy. It is said that 60,000 English troops, writes Mirzrata, 60,000, half from Bengal, half from other provinces, without counting servants and camp followers, went to Afghanistan, and only a handful came back alive, wounded and destitute. The rest fell with ne neither grave nor shroud to cover them, and lay scattered in that land like rotting donkeys. For the English love gold and money so much that they cannot stop themselves from laying their hands on any area productive of wealth. But what prize did they find in Afghanistan? Except on one hand the exhausting of their treasury, and on the other the disgracing of their army. It is said that 40,000 English troops have been in Kabul, and many were taken captive en route. Others remained as cripples and beggars in Kabul. And all the rest perished in the mountains like a ship sunk without trace. For it is no easy thing to occupy the kingdom of Khorasan. These English had hoped to establish themselves here, to block any Russian advance, but for all the treasure they expended, for all the lives they sacrificed, the only result was ruin and disgrace. For if the English had been able to take and keep Afghanistan, would they ever have left this land where 44 different types of grape grow and other fruit as well, apples, pomegranates, pears, rhubarb, mulberries, sweet watermelon and muskmelon, apricots and peaches, ah, and ice water. Ice water that cannot be found in all the plains of India. For these Indian sepoys know neither how to dress nor how to eat. God save me from the fire of their dal and their miserable japatis. So that's Mirza Atta signing off. So what do the British do next? What they do is they send in their best general, General Pollock, and with what they call the Army of Retribution. And Pollock takes the Khyber Pass. He makes none of the mistakes that his predecessors make. He sends up flanking uh, forces on the mountains on either side so that no one can fire down on the army. And he moves forward very slowly and very meticulously. And each time he comes to a village, he unroofs the houses, he burns the crops, he cuts down the trees. He advances like this, laying waste to everything in southern Afghanistan until he gets to Kabul. He liberates the hostages, and having got them back into British hands, uh, he then leaves a parting present to Kabul by destroying this building, the Char Chatta Bazaar, which was built by Shah Jahan, or rather his governor, Ali Madan Khan, at the time of the Taj. It is the supreme masterpiece of Mughal domestic architecture, the greatest bazaar in Central Asia, and Pollock dynamites it, levelling it to the ground. And then he marches out again, back to India. Discreetly, while all the speeches are being made and victory is being proclaimed, Dost Muhammad Khan, 
the man the British originally fought the war to get rid of is liberated from prison and allowed to return as Emir to Afghanistan, taking things in a full circle. This week, David Cameron invited Karzai to Chequers, where he persuaded Karzai, or tried to persuade Karzai, to negotiate with the Taliban, who the war, of course, was fought in 2002 to get rid of. History uh, pulls a full circle. When I began work on this book, I thought they, it was clear that the thing I needed to do to write it with any degree of authenticity, as well as getting the Afghan sources, was to actually do the route of the retreat. And the beginning of the retreat isn't a problem, but the end of it is, because the last stand at Gundamuk backs... This is Torabura. This was where bin Laden made his last stand. And it's now deep in the heartlands of the Taliban. Uh, and I couldn't work out how on earth I was going to get to see this in order to describe it. And then I had a lucky break. I was arrested by the Afghan security, the NDS, and hauled in. And it turned out that the head of the NDS, a guy called Amrullah Saleh, who was Karzai's security chief, had read my last book, The Last Mogul, and didn't like it. Uh, <laughs> and thought that I was far too uh, easy on uh, 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 Bahadur Shah Zafar. And I was interrogated by him. But interrogation is not too strong a word. Uh, why did you write this? There's a lot of this sort of stuff going on. And then eventually, he decided to help me in order that I'd do a better job this time. <laughs> and so he kitted me out with a guy called Anwar Khan Jigdalik, who is a former Hezbi Islami Mujahideen commander who'd just come in and joined Karzai's government. And he's about sort of 10 foot tall by 18 feet wide. He was the former Olympic wrestling champion, uh, sort of captain of the Afghan Olympic wrestling team. Uh, and Anwar Khan was the direct descendant of the guys who built the holly hedge at Jigdalik uh, on the last stage of the retreat. And his village was just 10 miles from Gundamuk. And he said, this is the one man who can get you here. So we set off. Uh, with this party, fabulous party of old rogues in turbans and rocket-propelled grenades on a party of pickups out of Kabul, and um, bouncing along, Anwar Khan driving himself. And uh, as we drove, I said, you know, do you see any parallel between this and what your ancestors did in the 1840s? And he said, it's exactly the same. He said, both times the foreigners have come here for their own interests, not for ours. They say, we are your friends, we want to help but they are lying. Whoever comes to Afghanistan, even now, they will face the fate of Burns and McNaughton. Um, they forced us in the 1840s to pick up our guns and defend our honor. So we killed every last one of those bastards. This incidentally hasn't stopped Jigdalik from sending his family away from Kabul to the greater safety of Northolt in North London. <laughs> anyway, we got to the village and... Um, there, Jigdalik was the kind of local hero, and immediately carpets were laid out in an apricot grove, and this enormous feast was produced, course after course of kebabs and mulberry rice and tent flaps of naan and all this stuff. And by about four o'clock in the afternoon, it's quite clear we were never going to get to Gundamuk um, because we'd just eaten too much and it was too late, and we'd all just sort of sitting there recovering from this meal. And um, we had to drive back to Jalalabad, having not got to Gundamuk. So I was very disappointed. Uh, but when we arrived in Jalalabad, we found, in fact, we'd had an incredibly lucky 
break because that very morning as we were riding out of Kabul past the site of the British cantonment of 1839, which it will surprise none of you to know is now the site of the NATO cantonment in Kabul, um, we, while this was happening, a party of Afghan police, trained by the Garda no less, um, were going out to burn the poppy crop in Gundamak. It happened to be this one particular day. And because Gundamak, I, I made inquiries, and Gundamak had been completely peaceful, although being in Taliban territory, it, it was completely peaceful for six months before this. But this very morning, the, the Garda and the, and the um, Afghan police had driven out of Jalalabad to burn the poppy crop. And there'd been an enormous firefight on this hill. And the uh, nine police vehicles had been blown up, 100 hostages taken, and three people killed. So had we turned up sort of burping and farting at half past five, uh, I don't think I'd be standing here uh, in this lovely room talking to you now. Uh, but the following morning, it turned out that the Gundamuk elders were coming into Jalalabad to negotiate. They had their hostages. So they sent in this Jirga team to negotiate. And Anwar Khan took me along to the negotiations. And we sat outside Jalalabad watching this Jirga, all these old men with turbans shaking their heads and arguing with the government. And as we did so, we, these, it was just next to the airport in Jalalabad, and you saw these predator drones taking off. And in films, there was one, one of these spooky aircraft, unmanned aircraft. In, in, uh, in like, I don't know if you've seen the new Bourne film, where they, they go and fire their Hellfire missiles and all the rest of it. But in Jalalabad, it's like a London taxi rack. These things are taking off every minute and buzzing all the hills around. And at the end, the elders came up and started chatting to Anwar Khan, who they knew. And uh, they said, we are the roof of the world. From here, you can control and watch everywhere. Afghanistan is like a crossroads for every nation that comes to power, but we don't have the strength to control our own destiny. Our fate is determined by our neighbors. Last month, said one of the elders, an American officer called us to the hotel in Jalalabad and asked us to go to a meeting. And they asked me, why do you hate us? And I replied, because you blow down our doors, enter our houses, and you pull our women by the hair and kick our children. We cannot accept this. We will fight back, and we will break your teeth. And when your teeth are broken, you will leave, just as the British and the Russians left before you. It's just a matter of time. What did he say to that, I asked. He turned to his friend and said, if the old men are like this, what will the younger ones be like? In truth, all the Americans here know their game is over. It's just their politicians who deny it. This is the last days of the Americans, said the other elder. Next, it will be China. Thank you. <laughs>